Hey, good morning, everybody. Good morning. Thanks for, uh, thanks for being here. Thanks for making it through the snow. And I know for me, there was like, I almost got an accident yesterday and then almost got stuck this morning. And I know many of you the same story. So thanks for taking the time to be here. My name is Matt, if we've never met before. And it's kind of confusing because there's also another guy named Matt who regularly teaches for two different people, though. Uh, my name is Matt Karsh, and uh, lived in Spokane since August of 2015. Born and raised in Los Angeles, so the snow is like completely foreign to me, and I'm really ready to have it be spring. Like just <laughs> flat out ready for it to be summer and spring. So uh, we are going to continue today through the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, so if you have a Bible, if you want to pull it out, or a phone, or an app. Uh, if you want to open to Matthew chapter 5, we are going to continue. We're going to be in verse 17. So if you find Matthew 5, 17, that's where we're going to end up. But just to remind you, if you've been here the last two weeks or maybe you haven't, um, you can always go back and listen to the teachings on the website. But just to catch you up on what's been happening, uh, two weeks ago we talked through what's called the Beatitudes, which is Jesus' opening to the Sermon on the Mount and where he explains and says these pretty radical things, things like, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek, blessed are the merciful. What Jesus does in opening his sermon is proclaim God's nearness and God's favor to people who traditionally we don't normally think of as people who get to experience God's nearness and God's favor. And then last week, um, we moved on to the next set of verses in 13 through 16, and This is where Jesus talks to his disciples and tells them that they are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And what we're going to get to today is what I'd like to to suggest is Jesus' thesis for the whole Sermon on the Mount. So it's really key for us to understand, not only for the Sermon on the Mount, but really Jesus' teaching and ministry on the whole. But one piece of historical context to understand before we get there, uh, what you have to understand is Jesus isn't teaching in a vacuum. He's teaching in a culture that had very specific pressures and had very specific things going on. And one of those things was these different schools of thought on how to understand the scriptures. So just like today, where there's multiple schools of thought on how to understand the scriptures, that was true in ancient Israel. And we learned from historians, specifically this one historian named Josephus, that there was really, in addition to Jesus, there was these three main schools of thought, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, who you read a lot about and hear a lot about through the Gospels. And there's this other group called the Essenes which if you've ever heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls, they're linked to the Essenes. So when Jesus is teaching, he's teaching to an audience who has these different understandings of what Scripture is all about and how Scripture is fulfilled. And so when Jesus is teaching, people have these presuppositions that he has to confront. And that's what we're going to see here in verse 17. So if you have your Bible, we're going to start in Matthew 5, 17. He says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, 
you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. So here, what we have is Jesus kind of preemptively responding to the objections and the thoughts of the thousands of people who are listening to him teach. They may or may not come from one of those different backgrounds with the idea of, we've been hearing about this guy, Jesus, and it sounds like what he's doing is something so radical, so different, so anti what we're used to, that there's this accusation that rises up against him that he's actually come to abolish the law and the prophets. But it's interesting because we don't necessarily use that language of the law and the prophets, so what does it mean? Well, the law and the prophets, in short, is this shorthand way to refer to the Old Testament or to the Jewish scriptures. Um, In Jesus' time and still today, the Jewish scriptures were referred to as the Tanakh. And that is a shortened form of three words, which is Torah, Nevi'im, and Ketuvim. They're a little Hebrew lesson for you. So Torah is often translated as law, Nevi'im is prophets, and Ketuvim is writings. So when the Jews in Jesus' day and still today, when they refer to their scriptures, this is referred to as the Tanakh. And what Jesus is doing here and elsewhere is just referring to the whole of scripture. So we see later in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 7, a couple of verses listed. If you were to turn there in Matthew 7, you would see that when Jesus gives his version of the, uh, the golden rule, he says, so in everything you do, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. Uh, later in Matthew 22, when Jesus is asked, what is the greatest commandment? Jesus says, it's to love God and love your neighbor. And then says, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. In Luke, this is after Jesus has resurrected. There is uh, this instance where he's talking to uh, two men walking on a road, and it says that, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. So what Jesus is doing here in Matthew 5, in saying, I didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets, he's saying, I didn't come to abolish the scriptures. And, and what are the scriptures? What what were the scriptures for ancient Israel, and what are they for us today? Well, it's an interesting question. But in in its simplest form, I think one way to understand the scriptures is to think of the scriptures as God's self-revelation. The scriptures are God revealing himself to humanity through his covenant people, his hope, his future, what he wants of humanity. Scripture, in short, is God's self-revelation, both for Israel then and for you and me today. So what Jesus is saying here in verse 17 is key, like I said, not only to understand the Sermon on the Mount, but also to understand Jesus' ministry on the whole. Because what Jesus is doing is he's saying, I have not come to wipe away or abolish or do away with God's previous revelation, but actually I've come to fulfill that revelation to actualize it, to embody it, to bring it to its completion. So Jesus goes on to clarify in verse 18. He says, For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus clarifies. He's not doing away with what God had already revealed. What he's doing is coming to bring it to its completion. And and this is key. 
And this is key for Jesus to address this because he's not someone who is anti-God, but he is someone who is about to raise real challenges to the religious establishment. People, people will, as we will see, the reason Jesus gets killed is because of his resistance to the religious establishment. So what Jesus is saying is that my interpretation of the scriptures is actually the right one. I'm the one who's come to fulfill the scriptures. And, and the religious establishment has completely missed this. It's almost like Jesus' disclaimer before he jumps into really the meat of his teaching, which is to say, hey, some of you are going to think I'm crazy. Some of you are going to think I'm out there. Some of you are going to think that I'm anti-God, but I'm not. But interestingly, Jesus actually steps it up one more notch in verse 20 with this really interesting statement. He says, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now for us, we miss the shock of that statement. But for the original audience, that would have been something shocking to hear. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees were a group of leaders who were zealous about following God's law. So much so that in addition to the 613 commands in Scripture, what they did was say, hey, we don't want to even come close to violating any of those laws, so we're going to create laws so that we don't even come close to breaking those. One example of that is Sabbath. So in the Ten Commandments, as recorded in Exodus 20, you have this statement from God to Moses. He says, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. Neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. Which is pretty straightforward, right? Don't do any work. But it leads to a question. What is work? And how do you define work? And so what these people who were trying to be faithful to follow God's command said, okay, well, we better define work. If we don't want to violate this law, because we know what happens when we violate God's law, it's not good, how do we define work? And so what develops over a series of hundreds of years is, are these two sets of documents called the Talmud and the Mishnah, which are these traditions of, okay, well, how do we define and build this scaffolding around God's laws to understand what it really means and how we don't break them? And so when they come to define work, there's things like lighting a fire or walking a certain distance or tying or untying or grinding. They define what work ought to be so that they can be faithful to not break God's law. And so what Jesus is doing is he's telling his audience, the group of leaders who came up with that, you have to be more righteous than them if you're going to enter the kingdom of heaven. So we, we ought to let that sink in. The statement and the shock of Jesus' statement there is that these people who are so zealous, you have to be more righteous than them. But the key of what we will see over the next several weeks is what Jesus, in effect, is saying here is that, so I didn't come, away, come to wipe away God's previous revelation, but rather bring it to its completion, to fill it in, to clarify, to fulfill and to teach and proclaim God's revelation rightly and correctly. And your measurement of what is righteousness, which the teachers of the law and the Pharisees would have been the standard of righteousness, your measurement of what is righteousness is actually completely off. It's completely wrong. You have missed what it's all about. 
And then Jesus launches into, if we were going to continue on, he launches into this, really this formula of saying, you have heard it said, but I tell you. So if we were to read on and look at, uh, if your Bible has little subheadings, murder, adultery, divorce, oaths. So what Jesus does is, you have heard it said, whether he's referring to the three groups of, of schools of thought, and that's who has said these things, or it's just straight out of the scriptures. You have heard it said this way, but I tell you. Jesus is giving a new interpretation of what righteousness is all about. And it's here in this sort of teaching, like the Sermon on the Mount, that Jesus really steps into and shows us one of, one of his identities, one of his true roles, which is as this true and full prophet of God. Just like Isaiah, some 700 years earlier, what prophets do is they, they call out God's people. Throughout the scriptures, if you do the right, read through the Bible in a year and you are able to make it through Leviticus, which is usually very difficult, which it's February, so I think you're pretty close to that, that. But if you make it through Leviticus and then you get into the prophets, what you will see is the prophets calling out God's people consistently. And so in Isaiah 58, we're going to read the whole set of verses. This is this prophet Isaiah calling out God's people. So God, through the prophet Isaiah, says, Shout it aloud. Do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their rebellion and to the descendants of Jacob their sins. For day after day they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways. As if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me for just decisions and seem eager for God to come near them. Why have we fasted, they say and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves, and you have not noticed? Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife, and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is this the kind of fast I have chosen? Only a day for people to humble themselves? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed, and for lying in sackcloth and ashes. Is that what you call a fast? A day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? And when you see the naked, to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? Then... Your light will break forth like the dawn, and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you, and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call, and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help, and he will say, Here am I. So just like Isaiah, some 700 years before Jesus, makes these statements, and this is just one of many examples makes these statements about how God's people have, they've become so hypocritical and missed the point and misordered their lives so much that there's this, there's this confrontation that happens. Just like Isaiah did that some 700 years earlier, that's in part what Jesus is doing here in the Sermon on the Mount, as we will see over the next several weeks. Jesus is confronting the hypocrisy and the misordered lives of his people. N.T. Wright, who's one of our favorite authors to quote here, uh, he says it this way, he says, like Elijah or Jeremiah, who are both prophets, Jesus was proclaiming a message from the covenant God and living it out with symbolic actions. He was confronting the people 
with the folly of their ways, summoning them to a different way, and expecting them, expecting to take the consequences of doing so. So to recap really briefly, uh, I think there are two big things to point out from this passage in Matthew. First, from verse 17, we see that Jesus is claiming to be the fulfillment of God's revelation. That Jesus said he didn't come to wipe away God's previous acts, but rather Jesus has come to fulfill that revelation, to actualize it, to embody it, to bring it to its completion. Jesus has come to complete and to clarify God's intent and meaning from the scriptures. Everything that the law and the prophets had communicated about God's will and hope and future for humanity finds its fullest meaning in Jesus. And Jesus has come to actualize the scripture and to take his disciples to a deeper understanding of its intended meaning. The book of Hebrews uh, really communicates this. But admittedly, Hebrews is really confusing. If you've ever tried to read the book of Hebrews, it's really, really confusing. But it might be helpful for for us to just read the first two verses. So it says, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he also made the universe. What the author of Hebrews is saying here is that in the past, God spoke through the prophets, like Isaiah or Elijah or Jeremiah. But now, at this time, God has spoken to us by his own Son. God, God's own word has taken on flesh in order to communicate to us. And so what this points us to is this idea that Jesus is the true prophet of God. He's the, he's the true and final and fullest mouthpiece for God. And these, and this fact, should give us the ears to hear from him over the next several weeks. And if you were to just read through the Sermon on the Mount, this is the preparation for Jesus' whole teaching on what life is in the kingdom of heaven is all about. As we, we kind of wrap up, I want to make one more point about this text. Um, Jesus is not against the law, as some might misrepresent. Um, if you've grown up in church, you, you've probably heard sometimes this idea that Jesus is like against any sort of rules. But clearly from this text, what we see is, and through the Sermon on the Mount, what we see is Jesus, he's not against the idea of having a codified set of rules to live by. He actually reaffirms that as a good thing. But what Jesus does is he points out a fundamental human error. When we get rules, we often are concerned with external acts. But what Jesus is about to clarify, and what what you would see throughout all the scriptures, is that although man is very often only cares about the external things, God cares about the internal things just as much. So what we would see, if you read on in Matthew 5, is Jesus talking about murder, about adultery, about divorce, about oaths. He talks about how we relate to enemies. He talks about hospitality and prayer and money and worry and judgment. And the reality is that you can go through your entire life and never murder and never cheat on a spouse and you could never swear and you could have your friends over for dinner and you could lean prayers at church and you could have completely missed the point. Jesus, through the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, is about to teach us what life in the kingdom of heaven is all about. 
you can go through all the right religious motions. You can volunteer, you can help out, and you can check that box, and you can still completely miss it. Well, what we've seen already in the Gospel of Matthew are these statements about the kingdom of heaven being nearby or being at hand. And what we used as a definition for God's kingdom or the kingdom of heaven was anywhere God's rule or reign exists. And that can be here on earth now, or we have this encouragement that, it, that in the near future, the whole universe, that will be true. Not yet. And so for us to live in God's kingdom in the here and now, Jesus is describing that through the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. And so what I want to get to, just as we wrap up, is Jesus' conclusion. So if this is Jesus' thesis, let's look at Jesus' conclusion because I think it helps us frame how we're to hear the rest of what Jesus says. So we're going to turn one more time, if you have your Bible out, your app, to Matthew 7. So just a couple pages to the right. So this is after Jesus has talked about adultery and anger and love for enemies and giving to the needy and prayer and fasting and worrying and and all that. And then he gets to, and then his conclusion starts in verse 24. And for me, this, this really only kind of clicked yesterday. I was just reading through the Sermon on the Mount. Um, I, I just read through the whole thing. It's like, okay, well, if, if, if the main point of what Jesus is setting us up for is this idea of there's a difference between external actions and internal motivations, how does that carry through to the very end? And I think if we get to verse 24, it becomes clear. So Jesus' conclusion to his entire teaching, he says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice, so all these words that he's spoken about life in the kingdom, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down and streams rose and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell with a great crash. What's the point for today? What clicked for me as I was reading through this yesterday morning was that the houses would have looked the exact same from the outside. If you would have walked by, they would have looked like two houses. But the difference is at the internal level, at its deepest level, what the foundations were like. What what Jesus says, and the the picture that Jesus paints, is that the difference is the foundation for these houses. And Jesus, as the fulfillment of the scriptures, and as the true prophet of God throughout the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, is going to paint these two options for living. One that is just obedient externally, or one that is transformed and shaped internally. And as the prophet of God, he comes to communicate to us, and we have the option to pick one of those routes. And my prayer and my encouragement for each of us is that we would let him and his teaching, his grace, and as we will see, his spirit take hold at the deepest root, at the level of foundation of our lives. And so that's my prayer for us, for each of us. Uh, not only today, but in the weeks to come and in the, the months to come, that we as a community, as a church, and as individuals would be shaped at the deepest level of what Jesus is doing. And so 
what we're going to do through the rest of our gathering time today is provide an opportunity for you to pray with one another or to pray um, with a handful of us in the back. So if the people who normally do that, if you can help me out with that. Uh, but when we transition to uh, receiving communion and singing again, we just want to open up the, the floor for you to pray and for you to um, reflect on those things. Because the reality is, in, in some way, shape, or form, for each of us, we have fallen short in that. I mean, if you're anything like me, I have not perfectly lived out Jesus' commands. That's true. And I am thankful that Jesus is one who forgives and is merciful. And so if there's something that's heavy on your heart as I talk about that, and there's something that's just clicking in your head as even I mention those things, pray with someone about it, talk to someone about it. And maybe it's something else. Maybe it's not something that's kind of been brought up with this, but maybe there's something else going on in your life that you just need someone to pray with you about or to know about or for you to share about. And that's what we want to create the space for in the next little bit. So uh, I'll invite Micaiah up and then I'll pray for us and then kind of release us to sing, to pray. Ian and Amy are in the back. Um, they, there's little lanyards um, so you know who, who you can pray with. But if you would pray with me.